If you would stand with me and turn to Acts 19 for the scripture reading this morning. Uh, Acts 19, verses 11 through 20 and 23 through 29. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to involve, invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together, and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. In verse 23, And about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with the hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristocrus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. You may be seated. If you would like a young person's bulletin, please raise your hand, and one will be brought to you. All right, so this week we are starting a new series. If you have been coming to OGC for some time, this is going to feel a little bit different, I think. It's our practice to just walk through books of the Bible, uh, hoping, aiming to make the main point of the text, the main point of the sermon, and apply that in our context today. But today we're starting a five-week series where we are teaching through our core values. 
So many of you are aware that there was a very intentional process that happened, uh, really started about a year ago to be able to really nail down who we are as a church, what we're here to do at OGC. And from that process, you'll see our vision statement came out. We exist to grow in Christ, bless our city, and send to the world. And then five core values came out of that, five values that we not only want you to be aware of and know, but our hope is that this church would really embrace these core values and that you would understand how almost every decision that we make in this church is shaped by these values. So this week, we are looking at our first core value, which is blessing our city. We want to be a church that blesses our city, and we're going to look at this core value through the lens of the Ephesian church. We're going to look at the rise of the Ephesian church in Acts 19 and the fall of the Ephesian church in Revelation 2 and look at how it is uh, that they blessed a city. So I was thinking this week, what does it look like? What does it really look like to bless our city? I mean, when you think about being a church that blesses the city, what are the kinds of things that come in to your mind? Or... If you were to try to explain to somebody outside the church what it looks like for us as a church to be blessing the city of Orlando, what would you say? And I think the best answer that I could think of this week would come from Jesus teaching us how to pray. Come from the Lord's Prayer where he says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think what we're seeing from what what Jesus is talking about is that where a church is blessing its city, the city in some way, in some pocket, begins to tangibly resemble heaven more. That's what I think it looks like. I was um, thinking, as we were talking with some church planters this week, you know, if there's one church that I think every church planter would want to emulate, it would be the church in Ephesus. I mean, Paul comes in as, as a stranger, he's preaching the word, Miracles happen, and in a relatively short period of time, according to this text, literally everybody in the city hears about and is affected affected in some way by Jesus Christ. I mean, that's that's pretty significant fruit for a a church plant. And I was reading this week an article uh, about the rise and the fall of probably one of the most influential churches of our century, and one of the staff people reflecting on their fall said this. One of our great downfalls was that we thought we were the first to do everything right. We were the first to do music right, we were the first to do teaching the right way, and we were the first to do community the right way. And I think a good look at the Ephesian church can prevent all of us from having that kind of pride. Because if you look at the Ephesian church, you see a church that's killing it before the term Christian had even made its way around the empire. You see a church, I mean, it's planted by Paul, pastored by Timothy and then John. You know, so yeah, some churches' pastors are writing books. Their pastors are writing the book. But then, as we're going to see in Revelation 2, something happened. The power that they were tapping into to affect their city in this way, it went away. So we see the rise and the fall of this church. And what our hope is, 
is that if we're blessing the city, if we're a blessing to our city, that there would be places where love reigns more significantly, where humanity flourishes and where God is glorified. So what I think we can learn from the Ephesian church, we see in these passages the outward marks of a church that blesses the city, the inward power of a church that blesses its city, and then finally a path to becoming a church that blesses our city. So that's how we're going to wade through this. First, the outward marks. In, in Acts 19, I think there are three really clear outward marks of a church that blesses a city. And the first mark is that the word is taught effectively. And by effectively, I mean it's taught faithfully and it's taught strategically. And we see both of these things playing out in Paul's in Paul's ministry. Obviously, we know that it was taught faithfully because of who was teaching it. It was Paul, it was Timothy, it was John. Uh, and we have these, these ancient letters from the early church that have circulated that say things like, heresy cannot flourish in Ephesus. Because the Bible was so well taught, people were so biblically literate. They had this real ability to know what the Bible says and to sniff out anything that was being taught that said something different. And we even have Jesus saying this in Revelation 2. He says, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I have no idea what the Nicolaitans were teaching, but it wasn't right and the Ephesians knew it. The Ephesians could sniff out bad teaching, bad doctrine. So the word was taught faithfully, but then we see that it was taught strategically. Paul, Paul was thoughtful in the way that he taught the word. He used his time well. He went first where? To the synagogue. The synagogue was the strategic place for Paul to begin this teaching. It was strategic because it was low-hanging fruit. These, these were people who believed in the one true God. These were people who understood and embraced most of the word of God. There was cultural familiarity, so he started his teaching there. But then at some point, we see in verse 9, this is, this is 8 through 10 right here, that that was no longer the most strategic place to teach. So in verse 9, he switches over to this hall of Tyrannus. So it was probably a lecture hall. Maybe it was owned by someone named Tyrannus. Uh, it could be that it was associated with a philosopher who was named Tyrannus. But at this point, Paul switched, and that is where he began to teach the word. He invested in his disciples so that they could go out and bless the city. And, and at Orlando Grace Church, <laughs> doctrine is something that has been important in the life of this church for a long time. And when I say doctrine, I mean the faithful teachings of the whole council of the word, the word of God. We were planted on the campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. We are unashamedly reformed. And a huge piece of how we see our stewarding, our history and our beliefs to bless the city is by maintaining and teaching faithfully and strategically the whole counsel of the word of God. But I'm gonna build on that in a couple weeks when we talk about our value of equipping our people. Second outward mark of a church that blesses its city is that the supernatural happens. And in this passage, we see the supernatural happening both inside the church and outside the church. First inside in verses 18 through 20. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. 
And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Do you see what's happening? These are believers coming together, confessing their sin, divulging their practices. We can't expect the supernatural to happen outside of these walls if it's not happening in our hearts. We can't expect that we would go and be real with a city if we're not being real ourselves. And this is where I want to talk about the community groups. Sunday morning does a lot of things, but it doesn't generally create space for this kind of supernatural to be happening. It doesn't create space where we can have larger, more private, maybe even safer conversations. We believe that that space happens largely outside of the Sunday space. It happens in homes. It happens in coffee shops. And community groups play a very vital role in promoting the kind of space and relationships that this kind of supernatural activity in our hearts plays out. And and I want to be really clear that community groups, it's not just a program that OGC does. It's not just something that happens over here. It is a core value of who we are. We believe deeply we need these spaces and, and maybe, maybe this kind of supernatural happens in that meeting or, or maybe that meeting is the way that the, these kind of supernatural conversations are platformed at a different time. But we believe deeply that it's necessary that is good for everyone who's able to plug into community groups. And I will be the first to tell you that I don't always want to go to community group. <laughs> you know, there, there are weeks where I'm tired. We are, our family is busy. We have lots of good excuses not to go, but every time we go, I come back and I'm thankful that we did. My wife and I are blessed. We're refreshed from being with other Christians who are committed to being real with each other. My kids actually enjoy it a whole lot, which is fun. And so what we want to do, we have been working very hard over the course of the summer to try and double the number of community groups that we have. And so you have that card. Our hope is that if you're not in a community group, that you would be willing to allow us to try and help you find a community group. So after this sermon, we're going to ask that you would fill out that card, put it in the offering plate, or turn it in at the Welcome Center. And we would like to start a process of helping you find a group where you could have this kind of safe space, where you could develop these relationships, hopefully in your part of town. And this evening at the family night service is when we're going to really flesh out exactly what that looks like. So fill out the card, come to family night. We believe that is a huge piece of how the supernatural happens inside of us. And if it's not happening inside of us, it's never gonna happen outside the walls of this church. So that's the supernatural happening inside the church. Secondly, we see it happening outside. Look at verses 11 and 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Gosh, what? How insane would it be that such supernatural activity is happening among the church that people outside the church are wanting to co-opt our strategies to tap into this kind of power. I mean, that's exactly what's going on here. You have these Jewish itinerant exorcists. I love that that was even a job. These Jewish itinerant exorcists who are wanting to, to use the name of Jesus to bring power to the things that they were trying to do. 
and it didn't go very well. (laughs) We see how that turned out when they went to the spirit, they invoked the name of Jesus and we read in verse 15, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them. And this is every kid's favorite part. So that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I think as a rule, you can say, if if you were in a fight and you left naked, you lost. (laughs) It didn't matter what kind of blows you got in. You came in dressed, you left naked, you lost. But that's not our main takeaway from this verse. Our main takeaway is, is that we need to be able to see and believe and embrace that God does the supernatural. He really does heal. He really will heal everyone physically fully one day when he returns. But in the meantime, the main healing that all of us need is spiritual. There are real forces working against us that we cannot see. And we need the power of the spirit of Jesus Christ as we go into the city. If we want our activity to last, if we want to glorify God and tangibly see places in this city look more like heaven than it currently does. And I love the result in verse 17. As this supernatural activity is happening, we read in this. So this is all the supernatural activity And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Everyone in Ephesus heard. I mean, that's a remarkable statement. Everyone heard. It doesn't mean that they all liked it, but everyone heard. I mean, could you imagine such significant spiritual activity, such significant awakening and healing and changing of lives happening among a small group of churches that the entire city of Orlando heard. The Orlando Sentinel's writing about it. Real Radio's talking about it. I mean, that's the kind of gravity I think that we're we're seeing in Ephesus, so much so that the name of Jesus was extolled in every part of the city. That's why we're here. That's why we come together. That is our call as individuals and corporately as a church. And that leads, when that happens, to the third outward mark of a church that's blessing its city. The habits of the city are changed. This is verses 21 through 31. So there were people who made their living off of selling these little trinkets to the the Greek goddess Artemis. And according to the text, Paul had been, Paul by God's grace, has been so successful in turning the affections of the people away from these Greek goddesses, gods and goddesses, and to Jesus Christ that it was changing the economy of the city. These people couldn't sell the trinkets that they were wanting to sell anymore. And so we read a riot actually came about. I mean, can you imagine if the habits of the city were so changed by Jesus Christ that strip joints couldn't pay the bills anymore I mean could you imagine a city where law schools would say yeah don't move there (laughs) those people don't sue each other they tend to work things out among them in an unusual way so you don't want to move to Orlando I mean what if this was a place where Jesus was so loved and extolled that the hurting were so well taken care of that Morgan and Morgan had to find a new place to do their business 
What if Jesus was so loved and extolled in this city that instead of racial tensions, we have people who are really wanting to dialogue and to hear and to understand all the history and the hurts and the hopes that come with an ethnicity. And that's something that Mike Graham is going to be talking about in two weeks more when he addresses our core value of contextualizing our mission. Or what would it look like if Jesus was so loved and extolled in this community that mothers with unwanted pregnancies knew that this is a place where they were going to be taken care of as a mother and a child, where they would be met with grace and acceptance, so much so that the abortion clinic across the street couldn't pay the bills anymore. That's the kind of thing you're seeing in Ephesus. The habits of the city are changing, and we need to believe that that's possible here too. That's when the habits of a city begin to change. That's when you know that a, that a church is blessing its city. All right, these are the outward marks. But we've yet to really get to the power, to the fuel of what's going on in the Ephesian church. Secondly, the inward power of a church that blesses its city. All right, to see the inward power, we need to fast forward say 40 to 60 years, turn right in our Bibles to Revelation chapter two, where Jesus is talking to the church in Ephesus. So to the church that we've been looking at in Acts 19. And all the outward marks are still there. He's saying, you're still working hard. You're enduring well. You are still faithful to all the doctrine of the word of God, but your power's gone. It's gone to the point that I may close your doors. Look at Revelation 2, 4, and 5. Jesus says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The church had lost its deep love for Jesus. The church's doctrine flag was flying a lot higher than its love flag. The church knew how to play defense still, but there was no offense. The church knew what it was against, but it had lost what it was for. One commentator said that they had gone from being propagators of Jesus' love to custodians of sound doctrine and proper decorum. And what we're seeing is no slap on the wrist. Jesus is threatening to remove the lampstand, to close the church. And there's some fascinating research coming out, mostly by Barna, but by some other people, as the spiritual landscape changes significantly in the United States, as we see churches closing on a pretty significant level. And what Barna is beginning to identify is that there's this point that they can identify when a church would, in the words of Revelation, lose its first love. When they let go of Jesus as the primary thing, and they, Barna would make the case that it's really hard for a church to make it more than two generations after that happens. And there are typically two paths for a church that has left its first love on its way to dying. One path is the liberal path. One path is the bunker path. And I think it's important for us to understand uh, what 
what this means, what this looks like. Because on the liberal path, and when I use the word liberal, I'm not talking about how you vote. <laughs> I'm talking about a church that lets go of Jesus and then soon after has, doesn't have the motivation to conserve the doctrine as it is given to us in the word of God. That's what I mean by liberal. And when that happens, churches, they begin to open the doors wide open to all kinds of different doctrines. And then they struggle with their mission, so they typically begin to invest themselves and their money and their time and their people into social issues. And many of these social issues they should be commended for. They're doing a good job helping the homeless and doing other things. But what happens is a generation or two later, people see other organizations that are popping up and doing a much better job at blessing the city and helping the poor and the homeless. And they begin to ask themselves, why is it that I need to go to church? What do I get out of it there that I'm not getting out of it here? And the church ages and dies. But that's not what's happening in Ephesus. <laughs> Ephesus isn't trending liberal, they're trending bunker. And so bunker would be the opposite end of the spectrum. Bunker would be when you don't open your doors wide to all kinds of different doctrine, you make the door really narrow. You take secondary and tertiary level doctrines and you begin to promote them to the top. You begin to make everything equal because your first love is no longer Jesus being right and knowing the right things and being comfortable in your theology. And when this happens, albeit often unintentionally, a church begins to build walls around itself that prevent people from coming in who don't look like us and talk like us and vote like us and educate like us and dress like us. And in the same way as the liberal church, in two generations, that church will die because it has lost its first love. But when a church keeps its first love, it exudes what I call biblical love. Biblical love is a church that holds tight to Jesus and everything that he teaches clearly. And a church that opens its hands on our preferences, on secondary and tertiary doctrines, because compared to the, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, all these other things just aren't as compelling. And so we hold Jesus tight and we open our hand loosely into these other things, and that is the kind of church that goes forward and blesses its city. And this is a church that's going to welcome diversity and awkwardness and messiness and a church that is going to make sacrifices so that other people are going to hear about Jesus. This is the love that the Ephesian church had at first. This is the love that the Ephesian church is losing that could compromise everything that they've been doing up until this point. Very early in my tenure here, uh, I made the comment, I think it was in a sermon, that um, we needed to be okay with messiness in our ministry. <laughs> that a, a fruitful church was often going to be a messy church. And since then, about every kind of messy issue that has happened, there's an elder named Ted who will lean over to me and say, is this messy enough for you, Jim? <laughs> and in some kinds of messiness, the answer is yes, I don't want any more of this. But there's another kind of messiness that we, we have to want and be okay with because we see what it is or where it is that that messiness is coming from. And I got a really good picture of this last week. Uh, our Mississippi family, uh, they wanted to meet our family halfway at the beach in the Panhandle. And so I drove my family up and then I had to come back because I have to work. And, and when I came back, 
I came back to a house that was clean, that was quiet. There were no dishes to wash, no bottoms to wipe. There were no fights to mediate. Nobody was waking me up in the middle of the night. I slept through the whole night. The house is clean, quiet, and tidy, and I hated it. I hated it. I wanted the toys that were strewn all over the front yard. My house is messy because there are little people learning and growing hopefully to go on and be flourishing human beings who love God and follow Jesus. That's why my house is messy. And I want it that way. And we have to want the church to have the same kind of messiness. You know, we want the church to be a place where young, spiritually young people can come in and there's freedom to make mistakes that spiritually young people make. There's grace, but there's enough love that we can all walk together into spiritual maturity. That's the kind of messiness that comes when we're a church that we're training and raising spiritually young people. And if we ever lose that, we're done. That's the kind of messiness we need to celebrate and desire. We don't want there to be a day when we come home and the house is quiet and it's clean and it's tidy. So if I can get really honest here, Here is some of the way that messiness is playing out right now. We have about doubled in size in the past eight months. So we're needing to figure things out like where do we find classrooms and teachers for double the number of children? How do we double the number of community groups? What do we do with a Discover OGC that has three dozen people in it? And honestly, the most complicated of the decisions is what do we do if and when this room fills up? These are the kinds of things that we're having to wade into as elders. But we need to have crystal clear in front of us what it is that we're here to do because we're not here just to attract the masses. People in seats is not the goal. We want to be a church that is training and growing people to love Jesus and go out and bless the city. And if that's what's fueling this growth, then we will do whatever we need to do to scale this to be able to continue to do what we're called to do. Because Jesus's plan has always been about blessing the city. I mean, you could make a strong argument that one of the main narrative arcs of the Bible is blessing the city. I mean, you start in Eden with the perfect city and man rebels and the city is corrupted and every city after that is corrupted because it's full of sinful people, us. And the rest of the Bible is God's pursuit of us to restore us in two ways, that we would love him and love each other, that we would bless him and our communities, our cities. And so you get to the covenant of Abraham and I think you could call the Abrahamic covenant the bless your city covenant because he's saying through you, I will bless all nations. But the problem is we don't keep our end of the covenant. And so you fast forward and God comes in and he keeps our end of the covenant. He comes in the form of Jesus Christ to die on the cross so that two things can happen. So that we can be forgiven for our failure to love God and our failure to bless our city. And we can be called back into that mission to love God and to bless our city called in in a way where we know that it's going to work this time. We know that the fruit of the labor that we are called into is going to succeed because Jesus is coming back. He is going to restore this world and it will be perfect again. This is Jesus's plan. 
So it's our plan. That is the power, the inward power, I think, behind a church or inside a church that blesses its city. So lastly, I want to look at a path to becoming a church that blesses the city. And Jesus has already said what this path is in Revelation. Remember, you've lost your first love. What are they to do? Remember it and repent. Remember and repent. Remember the love that you had at the beginning. Repent of the fact that you're not there anymore and come back. That's what Jesus is saying to them. That's what he's saying to us. But I think there is another aspect that we can draw from this word remember. Remember who you are in relation to God. Remember who you are as a church, what you're called to do. Because at our core, we are a sent people. We are a missions outpost. And that changes, that fundamentally changes the way that we understand who we are as a church. We're a sent people. So if you have consumeristic minded churches who are constantly thinking, how do we give you what you want? And you have consumer-minded Christians who are constantly thinking through, where am I going to get what I want in a church? That could be this program. It could be this music. It could be better visibility on your business. Those fundamentally are about us. That's a consumer mindset. I asked uh, one of my kids this week, you know, what does it look like to be, what do you think, to be a consumer-minded person in church? And he said, oh, just going to church to get that piece of candy from the children's bulletin. It's like, well done. Those are the little kinds of wins that keep this dad going. What we need to be asking as individuals is how does this church send me? How am I sent better because I'm in this church? And we as leaders, we need to be constantly asking ourselves, how are we doing at sending people? Are we equipping people to to go and do what they are called to do? If our goal is only to gather then we've lost our first love. But if we maintain that first love, understanding that as a people, we are to gather and then scatter. We are to come and then go. We gather and scatter. We gather and scatter so that we can come together, be refueled and reoriented, worshiping our God, and then going into the communities to share that love. We gather and scatter. So how very specifically does this play out at OGC? Uh, some of you probably are very familiar with our, uh, our strategic plan for 2019. If you aren't, it's on the website. You can see it. Again, this is the result of a very intentional process. We have our vision. We came up with our values. And then to the side of these values, we have tangible ways that we want to move towards this value being more true of this church this year. And so under the banner of blessing our city, we began to talk about the 5,000 people that are moving around our nearest sunrail stop. The sunrail's fundamentally changing this, the landscape of Orlando. So we have 5,000 people moving into these really nice apartment complexes, and we want to talk about how we engage these people who are in our backyard. We also want to understand more just about how the sunrail is changing everything and are there ways we can leverage these massive changes going on in our city for the gospel. That's one thing. We recognize that the easiest connection that we have to this city is online. And if we, we went through our Discover, the three dozen people in Discover OGC last week, and the majority of them came to us through the internet, through Google searches. 
And so we decided in 2019, we want a new website. We wanted to do some things very specifically that we weren't doing. We created all new social media uh, accounts so that we could publish things and bless the city like sermons and sermon clips and blog posts, videos like you saw today that Anna did. We want to, we recognize the importance of vehicles like the Gospel Coalition and Ligonier, Nine Marks, Rooted, and others. And so we have decided it's important to us that the half dozen or so people in our church who write for those organizations continue to write for those organizations because that is a vehicle to bless the city. But again, you're going to hear a little bit more of that when we talk about equipping our people. Uh, we are also starting a podcast as a highly Orlando-centric podcast designed at Blessing Our City. Justin Holcomb and I are going to host this thing. I'll talk more about it in a few weeks, but that is a way that we think we can tangibly equip you and bless the city. We've identified that there are two missing generations historic over the past 10 years in this church. The two missing generations are the Gen Xers, so like my age up to Boomer. There's, an, there's one, we're two right here. And their correspond, the corresponding age of their children. And what they have communicated to us is that this church didn't have the resources to minister to them and equip them and send them. And so we have heard this feedback and we've hired Skylar Flowers to expand our student ministries from 6th to 12th grade. And so our hope is that OGC would be a place where a family like mine can come and be resourced and blessed in this great age of opportunity so that we can all be going out to bless our city. We're looking at ways that we can utilize the training that Angela and I have as speakers with Family Life here among the struggling marriages here in our context, not just in in the church, but outside of the church. So we're having some of those conversations. And then finally, now that we are in the process of joining Acts 29, we get to bless our city by ramping up our church planting efforts. Just by entering into the conversation with Acts 29, we are now a real part of church planting. We have two church plants that we're working with and trying to get off the ground along with a couple Acts 29 churches in Central Florida. There's a church going to Leesburg. There's a church going to Apopka. And we get to be in that game. We get to support it, which you're going to hear more about when we talk about our core value of sending our best and stewarding our resources. And I know we have a long way to go. We do. But it's baby steps like these every year that I think will get us to a place where we can look and see the city being affected, tangibly looking more like heaven. And I know that up until this point, most of what I have talked about is organizational. But I also recognize how much of it is organic. Because you are the ones who are going to do this. You are the ones who touch so many different parts of our society. And I recognize that so much of it is powered by the Holy Spirit and all of it is in God's hands. And because it's in God's hands, it has to be bathed in prayer. So here's my request. Would you find a way, create a system in your life where you pray through our 
our core values. Find them online, write them somewhere, put them in your car, whatever system works for you. But we need to be a people who are praying consistently that we would bless our city, that we would contextualize our mission, that we would steward our resources, that we would send our best, and that we would equip our people. That's our, our prayer. But we all need to be praying together, working together, and really begging God together that we would be a church that would bless our city. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful that you, you don't just save us and put us on the sideline. You bring us into the story that is playing out, been playing out for thousands of years. You bring us onto the team that will win and you bring us into a life of eternal value. And so I ask that you would make this a church where we can tangibly see that we're blessing our city. We're a spread out people. (laughs) For many of us, city means something different. But we want that this greater central Florida, this greater Orlando area, that it would would resemble heaven more tangibly because of our presence and the presence of other people faithful gospel-centered churches who we get to labor alongside. We thank you that this is all by your grace, not of our works, empowered by your spirit. So we pray that that power would play, would move forward, would play out in all of our lives individually and us as a church corporately. We thank you for who you are We thank you for your son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.